Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. My name is Paul Ellis, and I'm your host for these programs about developments in this fast-growing industry. I've had the privilege to work with both of today's podcast guests as leaders of their company, the first company to launch a responsible investment fund and still a leader in the field. Calvert Research and Management is part of Morgan Stanley Investment Management today and traces its roots to Calvert Investments, which was founded in 1976. The Sustainable Finance Podcast is privileged to welcome Emily Chu and Anthony Ames to this episode, and we're going back in time to begin today's conversation. Responsible investing was first given official status as an industry concept by the UN Principles for Responsible Investment in 2006. However, Calvert's history in the field stretches back many years before that. Anthony and Emily will share that story in a moment, but first I want to say a few words about our sponsor. If you're tuning into this podcast, then you already understand the crucial role finance plays in the transition to a sustainable future. With the right individuals leading the way in top companies, sustainability becomes more than just a buzzword. That's why we're excited to have Acre as our sponsor. As a world-leading sustainability search and recruitment company, Acre enables organizations to create real change by embedding and developing purpose-driven people in their teams. Visit the Acre website to learn more about their latest opportunities or to get in touch about building your perfect team. Hello, Anthony and Emily, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. It's a real pleasure to be here, Paul. Thank you. Yes, well, please share with us Calvert's origin story and from your seat today, the key milestones or initiatives that have moved the industry forward from then until now. Who's going to go first? I guess maybe I'll kick off and then uh, we'll, we'll sort of go back and forth here because we have uh, different perspectives, unique perspectives, and I think, I think very complementary perspectives. Um, I've been at Calvert for a long time, as you know, Paul, a little bit over uh, 25 years at this point. And Calvert has a very unique history. Um, as you say, we were actually one of the very first companies to offer a responsibly invested uh, fund in 1982. Um, Calvert was actually started on Calvert Street in Washington, D.C. in 1976. It was founded by a couple of entrepreneurial sort of pioneering sustainability leaders, Wayne Sylvie and John Guffey. Um, interestingly, not in the sustainable investment business, they actually launched one of the very first money market funds. That money market investing, sort of alternative to bank investing, was a brand new invention in the mid-70s. Of course, we had really high interest rates at the time, really high inflation. So they they offered, I think, a fund that was called the first variable rate fund of government securities, something exotic like that. Um, <laughs> but their their passion, their passion was in sustain sustainability. And of course, we weren't saying the word sustainable back in the late 70s, early 80s, nor were we talking about ESG. It was really sort of socially responsible investing. And we launched in 1982 Calvert Balanced, which is a fund we still have today. And it was our very first effort. And there were a couple of companies that offered um, responsibly invested funds, but you, you could certainly count on one hand the number of companies that offered them. And I would say Calvert established sort of a leadership role back in those days, uh, in addition to a, a set of sort of traditional responsible investing oriented um, criteria or um, sort of priorities, we were also the very first investor to take a stand on apartheid. 
We were Calvert was the very first investment company to have codified language in our prospectus to essentially not invest in companies supporting an apartheid South Africa. And Paul, I think that's relevant because here we are 41 years later, and of course we are still dealing with diversity issues. Um, you know, apartheid um, was um, you know essentially I don't know if solved is the right word, but, but word, but it certainly improved. Uh, when Nelson Mandela was released from jail in the 90s and became the president of South Africa. Uh, but through, you know, in the early days of the pandemic, Paul, we found ourselves with a situation here in the U.S. in the wake of George Floyd and the police brutality and kind of the civil unrest that we were dealing with. Yes. Calvert has, has long been sort of a leader in evaluating companies from a diversity perspective. And we did a bunch of research back in 2020 to, to discover that, in fact, not only can you evaluate companies from a diversity perspective, we think that there actually can be performance alpha that can be generated by identifying and investing in the companies with better sort of DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion performance. And so we actually um, developed some, some new investment strategies um, based on um, our ability to identify companies that are better offering a diverse, equity, equitable, and inclusive um, culture. So, um, a little bit about the history of Calvert there and sort of this evolution. Obviously, a lot has happened in in those 41 years, uh, but I think it's an example of a theme that sort of got us into the business 40 years ago that is still very relevant, and it's an opportunity to sort of innovate um, to, to the benefit of our clients around that. Great. Emily, tell us, uh, what, tell us about your perspective on this part of the industry uh, since you've been become part of it. Sure, and I'm a much more recent addition to Calvert, but I think the, the antecedents of Calvert that, that, that Anthony's highlighted is really interesting because it kind of traces the path uh, along a broader industry movement. And I think particularly in the last five years and then before that, the last 10 years, and before that, the last 15 years, there's been step changes in how the responsible investment industry has operated. And a lot of that has been related to the adoption of voluntary frameworks for really exploring the relationship between the broader environmental and social context in which companies operate and the investment world and the capital allocation decisions that we make as investors. So some of what, some of these early initiatives included things like the UN Global Compact, which was a UN-led initiative that identified a kind of norm, global norms of doing business, norms that were very fairly universally accepted, such as do not pollute in your business. Do not co uh, commit human rights abuses in your business. Uh, do not run your business in a corrupt uh, fashion. These types of universal principles, you know, and Calvert was right there at the beginning as a signatory and supporter to the UN Global Compact. And then fast forward to 2006, I think, uh, you know, you, you mentioned in your opening remarks, Paul, the UN Principles for Responsible Investment. In 2006, I think we really see a kind of crystallization of this concept that ESG, environmental, social, and governance factors, a broad term for all of these socially responsible or responsible investment concepts that many of us have been dealing with previously, but ESG became the crystallization of how we think about those concept in, concepts in a kind of data-oriented framework that investors can actually apply in their daily practices. And Calvert was a founding signatory of the UN Principles for Responsible Investment in 2006. So, the fact that we had this uh, uh, kind of uh, orientation towards socially responsible and responsible investing 
from a very early stage, I think that gave us an entree into being a, a shaper of some really key industry standards that have enabled the practice of ESG integration and the practice of responsible and sustainable investing to really scale up into the mainstream. In more recent years, I think a really significant development has been uh, in 2011, the founding of the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board, which I mentioned because most recently in the last couple of years, all of that work that has been done under the rubric of the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board has again evolved to become more formalized under the um, International Sustainability Standards Board, the ISSB, which just a few months ago released their two finalized reporting standards, which are now being very actively discussed by regulators around the world as a minimum baseline for ESG disclosures for companies. So really moving from that informal and voluntary mode of operating in this space to a more formalized and regulated mode of operating in that space, which I think reflects the fact that uh, responsible investing has become mainstream. It is valued by uh, investors that are return-seeking and return-oriented. Uh, it's understood as a, as value-adding um, to how we allocate capital. One, one final point to note is that Calvert was a founding member of the Investor Advisory Group of the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, the SASB, which is now the ISSB. Um, forgive all of the acronym soup, but that is something that we manage in our space. And uh, as part of our role in the IAG, we've been a very uh, vocal advocate for the uh, financial materiality is the orientation for what metrics should be required to be reported from companies, what, what ESG metrics become standardized as part of those initiatives. And we were very vocal in advocating among companies that we invest in for the voluntary adoption of SASB. Uh, and now as it moves into ISSB, we'll be speaking to companies about the ISSB standards. Great. You know, and just a fun fact quickly, Paul, because sure. I think a lot of uh, Emily just described it really well. So a lot of the work that we've done, in addition to hopefully providing compelling and competitive investment products for our clients, but to do sort of this field building work to to join, uh, be a founding signatory or an early collaborator with all the organizations that have built essentially the foundation for the industry that we enjoy today. Fun fact is when when uh, when the UNGC was established, I think maybe in 1999. Kofi Annan was running the United Nations. Calvert was the very first U.S. financial firm to sign on to the U.N. Global Compact. And, um, and as Emily sort of ticked through there, the UNGC has a set of principles. I think it's 10 principles, and those predate the principles, probably were the foundation for the PRI. But Calvert actually uh, developed and offered and contributed principle number 10, which is the one that I think is focused on corruption. And that we should be assessing companies' performance, or you know, um, mindful of companies' involvement with corruption. Okay, so Emily, back to you for the, the next question to begin with. Here, how did the industry and Calvert's practice of responsible investing evolve from exclusionary screens to the approach adopted today, which is much more focused on financial materiality? Well, I'll let um, Anthony speak to the to Calvert's practices and how they've evolved because he's lived through that uh, in in his in his career. But what I would note is that more broadly in the industry, I think that exclusionary approaches were um, adopted quite early by responsible investment practitioners, and that's partly because they were easier to implement. It was easy to identify companies that were involved in activities that 
were perhaps distasteful or not in alignment with the values of the investor and it was easy to take an exclusionary approach. Um, I think that the story over the last 10, 15 years has really been the rise of integration or the integration of ESG factors into investments, whether it's through a bottom-up research process or through a more top-down asset allocation process, but there's been a much more nuance that's been built into the industry, partly uh, well, largely driven by the greater availability of data and the improvement of company practices in these areas. And part of that has been the advocacy that investors such as Cal that have, have done over many years to increase that transparency. What I think is interesting is that um, in the last couple of years, the, the frequent use of exclusionary approaches is actually on the rise again. Uh, so I think that it subsided a little bit in the last 10 years as the industry moved towards more ESG integration and value creation from a bottom-up perspective. But I also think that the uh, anti-greenwashing push, uh, I think the move towards fund labels and categories, particularly in Europe, has led um, more fund manufacturers to introduce uh, exclusions uh, across the board or for a number of different funds that they've launched, partly, again, because it's still easier to point to that than a robust and rigorous ESG integration process. Uh, you know, I think our view is that it's important to accommodate a client's views on the world where they might venture into that exclusionary or negative screening approach, but it's not a feature of Calvert's investment philosophy. We believe that the issues we're dealing with are too nuanced and deserving of a, a bottom-up and qualitative review and that there needs to be room to hold companies that may have historically had poor performance, be controversial, or may have historically been involved in controversial business lines but they're in a state of change and transition. Anthony? That, no, no, yeah. That's really, it's it's really well said. And I, there is some irony that we sort of started out with screens and and to, to some extent, maybe based on sort of the prescriptive orientation of some of the regulation, we're sort of moving back to screens in some ways. Um, I think, so it was easier to implement with screens. We also didn't have a lot of other options back 15, 20, 25 years ago. And, um, you know, there was very little data, there was very little disclosure from companies, and that has really only improved in the last uh, 10 years or so. And we still, in most jurisdictions around the world, are dealing with voluntarily, often unaudited information. Um, and so, if, if there, but I think there were two sort of dramatic developments over the last 10 years, Paul. Um, the first was the fact that companies started offering more data, not because of a compulsory framework, not because regulators were asking for the information, but because investors were asking for the information. So I think the statistic is in some, in like 2011, less than 10% of companies in the S&P 500 were offering any sort of disclosure on their environmental, social, and governance performance. Fast forward to more, more recent years, and I think more than 90%. Of companies, and again, it's not because the SEC or a regulator is asking them to; it's because investors demand it. Um, and companies in their peer groups, they see their competitors are starting to do it, so they they fall in line and 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 offer it as well. So we have more information now to assess companies. I'd say the real sort of seminal moment, uh, Paul, was in 2015 when George Seraphim, who you've probably had on this podcast, George Seraphim and his colleagues at Harvard Business School produced that that first research. I think it was the first evidence of the financial materiality of the ESG factors. And he used data that went back, I think, to the early 90s. It was something like, a, you know, close to a 25-year track record uh, time period. 
and and actually prove for the very first time that you actually can use ESG information to assess companies' performance. And in fact, companies with better ESG performance can outperform companies that have weaker performance. But the 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 trick or the rub, the 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 special um, sort of factor that we must consider is assessing which factors are most important to companies. So the financial materiality of issues, and 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 that is typically dependent on the sectors and very much the industries and even sub industries that companies operate in. And I think Calvert was one of the very first companies to embrace this concept of materiality. We built kind of a proprietary. Um, system back in the 2015 time period. That's also when we introduced our Calvert principles. So we, we would describe as sort of a principles-based approach, which allows us to do what Emily just described, is sort of recognizing that that nuance and that flexibility. Um, and, and I think that's when you also saw many investment managers get uh, it sort of take up integration uh, of ESG information. So there has been quite an evolution back from those early days where a set of screens or exclusions was was frankly kind of a blunt instrument. And, and probably eliminated more companies than we needed to. And, and now we can be much more precise and consider the nuance that that companies are evolving, companies are, are changing and transitioning. And through that transition, we think there are a lot of really interesting investment opportunities. Great. Well, um, unfortunately, Anthony, I haven't had George on the podcast, but maybe you can put in a good word for us and we can... <laughs> be happy to do that. We can George is a great Calvert friend. Good. Good. Now, Emily, you mentioned about companies in transition. Uh, of course, that's across every sector of the economy these days with all of the regulatory infrastructure that's coming into play. And it's also a big buzzword these days in relation to climate related risks and opportunities for investors. So please share your thoughts and yours too, Anthony, on how climate change is impacting investors. Yeah, thanks, Paul. I mean, I, I think that it is true. We, we talk a lot about transitioning companies. And the, the reason for that is because that's where a lot of the upside actually is. And ESG data, uh, in a macro sense, has also demonstrated that in some market conditions, in some sectors, the delta or the change in ESG performance can be more predictive of, um, of the performance of the company than the objective level of performance given at a particular point in time. So another way of saying that is highly um, uh, companies that assess very well on ESG metrics, that may already be priced in to the price of the stock or the price of the security. And there might not be a lot of uh, you know benefit to you as an investor necessarily in always holding the companies that have that are in that really top tier of ESG performance. And there's a lot of potential benefit in holding the ones that are evolving and changing, uh, where that may not yet have been priced in by the market. So the whole concept that ESG risks and opportunities are not yet efficiently priced in is a really big part of, of why Cal investors like Calvert are able to add value for our clients. So in the area of climate, I think this is a you know, really rapid area of innovation. Uh, it kind of makes my head spin just thinking about even just the last five to to seven years of how much has um, how much has been put in place in terms of frameworks, definitions, disclosures, policy shifts, uh, the availability of data from data vendors, data providers, and a lot of innovation around how that data is generated as well. And in, in terms of the emergence of estimates, or in terms of the emergence of very specific 
uh, climate-oriented scores like transition scores or low-carbon scores or uh, even implied temperature uh, scores. And I think that, um, you know, as companies have started to shift in response to many of these forces um, that are happening in the real economy, so new technologies are being proven, the cost of adopting new technologies is falling, there are clearly new policy priorities, the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. being the kind of landmark act for, for these purposes in the U.S. and releasing a very large amount of, of capital into the market to really shift companies towards cleaner and greener business models. And then also just the changes in the physical operating environment that we're seeing and 2023 being another banner year for climate disasters around all around the world of all types, drought, floods, fires. Um, these issues that we're, we're seeing are potentially present not only risks, but also opportunities for investors. And, you know, five to six years ago, I think we could say that companies that, are, that were taking serious climate action were perhaps an easily identifiable minority. Uh, very few of them had adopted robust uh, carbon reduction targets or actually disclosing full scope one, two, and three data. Today, that picture is a lot more nuanced and it really supports the case for bottom-up research. Um, so, you know, Anthony mentioned the fact that, that our research team has um, developed a proprietary research process that's very oriented towards financial materiality. One of the issues, our research team is, is um, sector-based, so we have sector leads across all of the different areas of the economy, and one of the key issues that they're looking at across all sectors is environmental risks and opportunities, and specifically climate. And um, some of the opportunities that we see relate, relate to uh, decarbonization of the energy system. Obviously, that's a that's massively underway, huge policy support, depending on where you're located uh, for that. Uh, then also, obviously, the clean uh, technology supply chain is a, is a really big theme that we're looking at, whether that is the adoption of storage capacity for electrons generated or battery technology and the supply chains related to that and then the mineral supply chain that's related to that. There's a lot of um, kind of really important and interesting issues. And then a, I think a, a secondary issue that's also coming coming down the pipe that we're seeing, harder to commercialize it right now, but the whole recovery and recycling industry. So recovering minerals, recovering materials and being able to them or to be being able to downcycle a certain um, as certain kind of technology such as battery technology so it might not might no longer be uh, utilizable in a car in an EV but maybe it can be utilized in some other industrial application so we're seeing we're tracking these issues and with a really um, forward-looking view because the transition is underway and so these kind of binary or rules-based approaches of where the company stands today are even less uh, we think valid in a space where you're seeing a lot of rapid transition. Anthony, over to you. Yeah, and I, no, that was all well said. And I'll just add uh, back to the, the previous discussion about the importance of supporting frameworks and making commitments. Um, not many people talk about the Montreal Carbon Pledge anymore that from 2014, but that was the very first sort of global opportunity to um, sign up for a commitment to measure, manage, and report the carbon emissions that we have in our investment portfolios. I think that was 2014 and Calvert was a founding signatory to that. Um, and, and in recent years, in the last couple of years, we have developed some climate-oriented strategies, like, for instance, a climate-aligned strategy, which um, 
attempts to do the work to identify the very best companies, sort of the companies with the most credible plans to reduce their carbon emissions over time uh, with important sort of milestones and, and progress that they can point to along the way, as opposed to, yeah, we're going to be carbon neutral by 2050 and check back in 2049 and we'll let you know how we're doing. Um, and uh, But I would say that really all of our strategies are sort of posited, positively tilted or positively positioned from a climate perspective. Um, we, you know, we, we look very carefully at fossil fuel reserves. We look very carefully at the company and sort of the energy value chain. And generally speaking, we have much lower carbon emissions and, and generally much more uh, sort of uh, positive um, metrics as it relates to various environmental factors. So I think we're well positioned to sort of tackle this, this, the, 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 the challenges that we have in the economy and, and in companies from a climate perspective, but it, it has been a it has been a journey. And I think those there's going to be some really interesting innovation and opportunities um to to invest in companies that that are that are innovating. I think the the recognition is is that every company sits on a spectrum and there's companies that are leaders and there are companies that are laggards. Uh, there are companies that think about this from a compliance perspective and there are companies that think about this from an innovation uh, perspective and um, and in the work that we do, we try to uh, differentiate companies in, in those regards. Yes, you know, we've been talking about the speed and thoroughness of transition that is going on across the entire global economy and all of the companies that are involved in the public and the private markets. How has the practice of engagement and proxy voting evolved as part of that process for asset managers? Well, maybe I'll start. And then, uh, Emily, I know you'll have uh, terrific contributions as well. So uh, as you know, Paul, you've known Calvert for a long time. Engagement has always been a really central tenet of the work that we do, part of our value proposition. And it dates back to the 1980s. Um, that's when we developed our own sort of proprietary method for voting proxies. So we took up kind of stewardship, if you will, back in those days. There weren't a lot of ESG-related shareholder proposals. In contrast to this last year, Paul, I think, which was actually there were more ESG-related proposals filed this last year than ever before, well over 600, I think it was. So critically important that an investor, that an investment management company has an approach to, to considering proposals that are filed at companies. It's sort of the one democratic part of investing where if you own shares in a company, then you that affords you the opportunity to, to, to vote your proxies and send a message to, to management on whether you agree or disagree with, with um, how they might be approaching any particular issue. Calvert is was the very first investment manager to file an ESG shareholder proposal in 1986. It was not the very first ESG proposal ever. I think ICCR filed one maybe in the early 70s, but we were the first mutual fund company to file one. Um, and we look for other opportunities to, um, to sort of innovate over the years as well. So as you know, Paul, the SEC re started requiring mutual fund companies to post on their website the results of their votes on all shareholder resolutions, both management and shareholder resolutions. Calvert actually had started putting the results of our, of our votes on the website, I think about three years before the SEC mandated in the, in the late 90s. Um, and then fast forward to today, we see it as a really interesting and important way to engage with companies. Uh, we probably don't have time to get into it in detail, but we have actually just 
sort of successfully completed um, an engagement effort to try to get the top 100 companies in our flagship index, the Calvert US Large Cap Corresponsible Index, the top 100 companies to disclose their EEO1 data, which is a very comprehensive uh, diversity disclosure that they have to make to the government, but they don't have to make it public to investors. And when we looked at this back in 2020, we found that I think 18 of the top 100 companies were making it public. And so we set out to get the other 82 companies to start making it public and, and to ensure that those 18 companies continue to do so. As we came into 2023, we were down to one company that had not committed or made their diversity information public. I won't name the company, but we did file a shareholder proposal with that company to get them to do that. And then we were able to successfully withdraw the resolution when the company agreed to make their information uh, public. So, you know, disclosure is the first step. We can now assess these companies' performance. We can look at their performance from a diversity perspective compared to other, you know, companies in their industries. And then this engagement sort of um, campaign 2.0 is then pressing these companies to actually improve their diversity information. We think the diversity is an investable theme. We have launched DEI uh, strategies in, in recent years, um, and I, we think it'll be an investable theme for the foreseeable future. Okay. So, well, can I add? please go ahead, Emily. After that, I, I think that if, you know, Calvert's history in this is, is very long, but taking a step back and, and looking at the industry as a whole, I think what's significant about what, how we're approaching engagement, there's echoes of this across the industry uh, to varying degrees. And I think it hangs on three elements. Firstly, having a clear business case for the company to change. So you have to, to know what you want the company to do and how it's going to help generate value for the company and ultimately for the investment portfolio. So it really hangs on uh, your assessment of the financial materiality of ESG factors and uh, having a robust research process and a theory of change for that company. And I think the second element is pursuing constructive dialogue at all times and using escalation where it's warranted where you don't have a constructive response from the company, that escalation is not the starting point. And it's one tool in an array of tools that you have to leverage your influence with the company and to, to really try to work together in partnership with the company for more constructive outcomes that are beneficial to the portfolio and beneficial uh, for the world at large. And then I think the third point is that we're seeing uh, the need for us and, and for other investors to be really engaging on systemic risks or structural failures uh, across the capital markets and really trying to attempt to change industry norms through thematic engagements and looking across your entire uh, holdings across all of the, the funds that you may manage. In, in Calvert's case, that's many. Uh, and then identifying, well, which of the, what's the slice of companies that's most exposed to that issue or has the largest kind of interaction with that issue? So Anthony mentioned the EEO one disclosure campaign. I think we're very proud of that because we really shifted the industry norm. Not only are the top 100 US holdings of Calvert now committed to or are disclosing their diversity data more fulsomely, but beyond that, we've seen a massive uptake of voluntary public disclosure of EEO-1 across the S&P 500, much more so than just a few years ago. So we really think that being part of being able to change those industry norms, actually, it's a tide that rises all boats, ultimately. It makes the capital markets more transparent, more efficient, more secure for everyone. 
The next area that we're you know tackling is pertains to climate emission, uh, climate and GHG emissions. And uh, we've gone through a fairly rigorous process to identify the companies most uh, exposed to that issue, whether as contributors or uh, in terms of exposure in their business model to to, the, to that issue. And we'll hopefully have some some great news to share in a couple of years from now around the success of that campaign. You know, our followers for the Sustainable Finance podcast are across generations, uh, they're demographically very diverse, et cetera. But I'm not sure that a lot of them have seen or been through uh, examples of structural and or systemic failure in the capital markets. Would you mind giving us an example of each uh, that, uh, that has been the case since Calvert came into being back in the 1970s? Well, my living memory doesn't go quite that far, <laughs> quite that far back, but I, I can say that uh, I think you know structural failures in the governance of the of the banking system was a problem mm -hmm. uh, back in two thousand eight nine. I certainly lived through that uh, the global financial crisis. Um, you know, there there was an issue there of transparency, uh, conflicts of interest in the business models uh, of financial services providers, an issue of ethics. Um, issues of mis-selling or almost misrepresenting the quality of assets. Um, so, you know, certainly that was a systemic failure, I think, of, of governance across the industry uh, and one that, you know, affected everyone at that point in time, um, affected my career directly, affected uh, the kind of financial prospects of various sectors of society since then. So I think that's certainly one example. And I think climate itself is, a, is an example also of a systematic, uh, a, a systematic failure of the capital market to address it, um, partly because there hasn't been, I think, the lack of, there hasn't been the transparency in the data available to be able to pass out which companies are truly at risk. There hasn't been transparency into the level of risk, whether it was technology transition risk, policy risk through perhaps shadow carbon pricing or the implementation of an implied price. Uh, either through the, the cost of inputs or you, uh, in terms of how you as a company sell to end markets. And there hasn't been, um, this still remains not great data today on how we can anticipate physical risk. Even though we have even more precise weather models, weather, you know, models that help us with um, predicting weather patterns and extreme weather events, and those are turning out to be even more accurate and more um, severe than originally thought. We don't have great data to then match that as an investor to securities. So understanding where companies operate and which operational sites are more valuable or less valuable to the company, that's actually really, really difficult to do right now. So there's a systemic kind of gap uh, in the market for data and transparency information to allow us to manage what's becoming a very apparent as a, as a failure of, of, of our kind of current economic system to appropriately manage climate. I mean, Anthony, you, you may have yep. some other thoughts. No, that was really well said. I mean, so I, I guess uh, the global financial crisis was a great example of that. I think even a few years before the beginning of that decade uh, was sort of the, the governance and business ethic lapses that we have uh, experienced in the 2000 to 2002 time period. Uh, I can think of one very large energy company at the time that, you know, pretty much imploded as a result of those issues. 
Um, and then I think in addition to the climate sort of systemic risk that we deal with today, I would put diversity right there as well. I mean, when we say something like we think diversity is an investable theme, you know, if it, as you know, Paul, um, women and people of color have outperformed white men in uh, in academic circles, in the attainment of college degrees, postgraduate degrees, not just for a couple of years, but like for decades. But if you look at the the demographics of the typical board at a public traded company, and certainly the sort of named executive level, the C-suite, and even senior management below that, um, you know, the, the the percentages of uh, diverse people are are quite low. And so when we are encouraging companies to take this up, I mean, it really is investing in these themes um, because they're not taking advantage of the most talented people necessarily when they're recruiting and bringing up people through their system. So I think that runs the risk of being a, a, um, a systemic, at least a very a big systemic challenge and an opportunity for companies. But if I think maybe just, and, and we're probably near the end here, but, it, and Paul, you've been in this business for um, probably as long as I have, maybe longer. There were certain sort of events that occurred over the years that were maybe a rallying cry. It was an opportunity for investors to think about the exposures they had in their portfolios and it and the and the result of of these events was bringing more people into our space, bringing more people. So tobacco divestment from the 1990s, those sort of governance and ethic lapses in the early 2000s, the financial crisis and and all the challenges that we had with the banking and finance sector in 2007, 2008. I would say the sort of a growing acknowledgement of climate, you know, going back five to seven years, uh, and then now diversity uh, more recently. And so these are the issues um, that have um, spurred great interest in our field. It also spurs us as practitioners to sharpen our pencil, sharpen our sword, and and um, do this work even better, whether it's research or engagement or simply um, delivering competitive investment results to, to the benefit of our clients, hopefully. Yes, in fact, Anthony, as you recall, uh, the 2000 and two, to 2002 crisis in the financial markets was my entry point into sustainable investing. And that's where you and I started working together. Uh, and it's been a great ride since then. And I really appreciate all of the opportunities that Calvert has helped me to create when I was in practice as an advisor and in my consulting roles today. So, Emily and Anthony, where online can our listeners learn more about Calvert Research and Management, and how can followers of the Sustainable Finance Podcast contact you with questions about the topics that we've discussed in today's episode? I might I might offer a couple of um, locations online. Emily, you, you probably have a couple up your sleeve as well. I mean, calvert.com is our um, shameless plug here. That is our website. And uh, I would say probably of the most important and sort of valuable resources on there is our blog. So we have an impact-oriented blog where we're able to put out very timely, I think, interesting, sometimes actionable information for investors. So the impact blog is a great uh, resource. I also, um, I'll plug uh, the, the our industry group, the Forum for Sustainable and Responsible Investing, USIF, as you know, Paul does uh, a lot of that sort of field blazing, trailblazing, field building work. Uh, and frankly, I've done a lot of work this last year to to deal with sort of the anti-ESG um, sentiment that's that's out there and established actually a page of the website that I think they call ESG Truths. 
to attempt to set the record straight, but there's a lot of great educational uh, information on that website as well. Yeah, great resources. And I think to continue the shameless plug for listeners who are outside of the US, potentially in Europe or elsewhere, you can also go to morganstanley.com and look for the investment management division of Morgan Stanley and you'll find information about Calvert's funds available outside of the US on that website. Terrific. Well, thank you very much, Emily Chu and Anthony Ames. And for our listeners, if you're ready to take your team to the next level, or if you're an experienced sustainability professional, visit the Acre website to get in touch. With the right individuals leading the way in your company, sustainability becomes more than just a buzzword. Let Acre enable real change by embedding and developing purpose-driven people in your teams. And to our followers, join us again next week for another episode. I'm Paul Ellis, and this is the Sustainable Finance Podcast. 